Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame's Hall Call Podcast. I am Will Driscoll, the Executive Director of the Hall of Fame, and it is my pleasure to bring Hall Call to you wherever you may be listening. We always aim to find a connection to sports in Virginia with our guests on Hall Call, and today's guest, while from Virginia, is connected to someone whose impact goes far beyond our borders. It's been almost two weeks now since the sports world was rocked by the news of Kobe Bryant's death. Now, you may be wondering, what does this have to do with Virginia and Virginia sports? Well, our great Commonwealth is home to one of the best basketball authors of our time, Roland Lazenby, a Withville native who now lives in Salem and a VMI alumnus, actually. Uh, Lazenby's work has seen him profile the NCAA tournament, the Showtime Lakers, the 1990s Bulls dynasty, and for purposes of this conversation today, two biographies on the late Kobe Bryant. The first, published in 2000, called The NBA Education of Kobe Bryant, and the second, published 16 years later, titled Showboat, The Life of Kobe Bryant. We're thrilled to be joined today by the VMI alumnus, Roland Lazenby. Roland, thank you for joining us today on the Hall Call podcast. Sure, Will. Happy to do it. So I guess the first question is, where were you or how did you hear the news of Kobe Bryant's death? Well, you know, I was just here at home uh, on a uh, sort of slow Sunday. I, I usually don't go back and uh, read uh, my books. <laughs> Once I'm done with them, they are, you know, the the large biographies are exhausting. Um, the Kobe book I wrote, 600 pages plus. And so I, I really hadn't looked at it in a while. And for some strange reason, I picked it up and read uh, the first two sections of it. And I, I hadn't put it down more than about 10 minutes. And I got a call from an in-law and then I got a, a, a quick uh, text from George Mumford, the mindfulness expert and sports psychologist who had worked with the Bulls and Lakers. He was a guy that I had introduced to Kobe years ago. And Kobe uh, valued him as a person who changed his life. So George had, had been hit up by TMZ. And he, he just thought it was a cruel joke. And then he realized that it was real and he texted me. And of course, the next thing I knew, the BBC had eight different shows. Um, it, it was a torrent of media attention and interviews, uh, 45, 46 interviews in 28 hours. It, it just um, knocked me out of the saddle um, emotionally. And just physically. What do you think drew you to, to read that day? Because you mentioned you never really go back and read your work. But what do you think drew you to that? Um, I'm uh, writing a biography of Magic Johnson right now for Macmillan. I've, I've done probably 300 hours worth of interviews on that book. And um, a couple of years before, I'd done a 700-page biography on Michael Jordan. These are large. Uh, they look at these sports stars in a couple of ways. One, that they're large uh, cultural figures, uh, important in business and culture, and and they're global figures. Uh, my Kobe books in nine languages. The Jordan books in 15 or 16. But these are also black power stories. Uh, and it's not the black power of, of politics and protest. It's a, 
it's a different black power, but it's still very much a black power story. When was and the, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, and so I, um, just to explain, I, I guess I had gone back to think a little bit about um, some of those elements in uh, in my magic book because it, it similarly is a is a big uh, uh, scope for the project. It is amazing the the outpouring of I guess support and reaction and emotion. Um, that his death has engendered across not just sports, but as you mentioned, just culture in general. Has there been anything that surprised you uh, about the reaction to to his passing? Well, you know, it's taken me a while to process it because uh, literally as soon as I got the phone call, the next thing I knew I was on the air and on the air till late that night. Um, you, You know, Kobe was a controversial figure. Uh, in a lot of ways, uh, was long considered a very divisive figure. He had, um, he had, uh, was, was misunderstood, never made any attempt, uh, to correct any of the misunderstandings about him, but he, he grew very angry and, uh, frustrated as a young player. Uh, I think that led to some of the huge mistakes he made. He almost destroyed his life, but he did have the will to rebuild it. The, the uh, outpouring for Kobe Bryant, though, uh, the, the, the one thing uh, that um, covers him above all others is his competitive integrity. He um, battled start to finish his entire career, and that began as a, a little kid he um, he was a fierce competitor. He never cheated the game. He worked insane levels beyond what any other pro basketball player would ever possibly contemplate. And that endeared him to the fans. He never cheated the game and he never cheated them. Was he a villain? Um, I think that depends on your perspective. Uh, I, I think you certainly can say he was foolish and, uh, he came into the NBA at a very young age, uh, at a time when the NBA was really all older men, hard faces, tough guys. And Adidas paid him millions of dollars to turn pro because Sonny Vaccaro, the great shoe, uh, mogul and kingmaker in basketball, was looking for, and Sonny Vaccaro told me this himself in extensive interviews, was looking for the, the, the next great player, the next Michael Jordan, that he could steal from the NCAA and that he could uh, turn into a, a huge shoe sales figure. And he discovered Kobe Bryant quite by accident. But uh, he had been looking and trying to find that player. None of the high school players wanted to go directly to the pros in 1995-96. Kevin Garnett did it in 95, but only as a last resort. So anyway, Kobe's entire early career, it was assumed that he was demanding to go to the Lakers, that he was demanding this or that. And none of that was true. That was all Adidas behind the scenes, pushing the whole agenda. There there was no reason for Sonny Vaccaro to 
defend Kobe on this stuff because the two men, while they were once close, are, don't, didn't speak at all and were not friends in any way in later life. But uh, one thing that was unknown when Kobe went to the NBA is that although his father had played 16 years of professional basketball, his family needed the money. That was no part of the conversation when, when Kobe came out because the Bryants lived a very high-profile, upscale life. But they, they were out of cash and or out of immediate cash. And so Kobe Bryant, in the spring of his senior year, had to sign that contract with Adidas for millions. And he looked at Sonny Vaccaro before he signed it, and he said, Mr. Vaccaro, is there any way my parents could have this money if I signed the contract and I could still go play college basketball? Hmm. I think that's a hard no, right? <laughs> Considering NCAA well, rules. It, it was a hard no, but it, it, there's a tremendous irony in that because one of the other important people I introduced to Kobe Bryant was Tex Winter. I, I spent a fair amount of time with Kobe when he was a um, – a young, frustrated player. And uh, I had worked covering and writing about the Chicago Bulls for, I don't know, seven or eight years. And I had become very close with Tex Winter. And in 1999, I was rebounding free throws for Kobe after practice at the forum. They were in the process of getting stomped by the San Antonio Spurs. And he was very unhappy. The team was very divided. And and out of the blue, he told me, you know, I've always dreamed of being coached by Tex Winter, who was the triangle assistant coach, the great college coach. Tex Winter had coached Michael Jordan longer than anyone. And he would become what Kobe Bryant described as Yoda. And Tex Winter had a, a deep opinion. He had lots of experience with, with Jordan and Kobe Bryant. And he said the main difference between the two is that Jordan had three years of college basketball, of very tight system basketball at North Carolina. And that made possible all the things the Bulls did to win those six championships. Michael Jordan had that background in team basketball. Tex, who was a tremendous defender of Kobe Bryant because of how hard he worked, pointed out that Kobe came right from his Philadelphia high school team to the NBA. At 17, and not At even 18. 17. I think, I think the, right. one of the stories I heard last week was that his parents actually had to co-sign his, con his initial contract because he wasn't an they adult did. yet. They they did. It was uh, – and so he came right into this. And, you know, I was there the night he scored his first NBA field goal. I sat with him for 30 minutes in the locker room at Cleveland that rookie season for the All-Star game before he went out to the slam dunk contest. Just Kobe and I in the locker room. And we had this wide-ranging talk. It, it He was so bright. And so talented, not just in basketball. He was a fine writer. Uh, he really already uh, had established his uh, philosophy of life and uh, had a clear idea of where he wanted to go. And he left that locker room and went out there and blew up that slam dunk contest 
and won it. And, and so he was very special, but very soon, very frustrated and very lost. And that's why I, I brought, I got George Mumford to fly down to a Lakers game in Houston so I could introduce him to Kobe Bryant on the sideline. And I remember Kobe looking at him and saying, let me get this right. In our busy world where practice time is very limited, Phil Jackson takes time out from practice to have everybody sit on the floor in the dark and meditate. And of course, meditation would become, and Phil Jackson through George Mumford had all of his players just find many different ways to deflect the pressure of performing at a high level. But George Mumford was the one thing that Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe could agree on. He was, as Shaq called him, he's our secret weapon. And Kobe treasured those two relationships. And it was fun to watch. I, I wasn't as close to him after the rape charges. But it was fun because Kobe could cycle in and out of media people. It, it was um, fairly common and not that unusual, probably. But um, I could sit back and watch, and Tex and I would talk on the phone every week, and I would I would get the updates on the battles Kobe was going through. Michael Jordan had the same kind of battles. Tex Winter always described it as a high wire act. Uh, what Jordan was going to do on a nightly basis or what Kobe was going to do because they were so talented and, and had those similar games or to, to visit with George Mumford and to, to go through all of the things uh, that he was doing with the teams to get them to grow, not just as players, but as people. You know, you talked about uh, cycling through media members, and that was an, another kind of theme uh, from a few people last week. Uh, J.A. Adonde and Shelly Smith from ESPN, who, who both are covered L.A., the L.A. scene very closely for many years. And they talked about kind of their peaks and valley relationship with Kobe. You had you wrote your two books about him 16 years apart. Um, I guess, first of all, what drew you to wanting to cover him initially outside of just the fact that he was this great basketball player? And two, how were you able to win the pitch? And I put that in quotation marks both times when, when approaching him on writing biographies. Well, first of all, you simply inform people. That, uh, and the first one was really a book about his adjustment as a young player. And you inform people you're writing books about them and biographies are difficult things to undergo. They are um, invasive in many ways. Um, players of all sorts, people of all sorts like to control their own narratives. And so I, I always am just very straight up with them. Um, they're going to get mad at things that are in the books, but I try to explain their lives. I find that sometimes uh, the most difficult chapters reveal the most character um, in the figures I'm writing about. And so it was an old home week for me to do the full biography on Kobe. He and his agent never responded once. Michael, on the other hand, talked a bit to me briefly. 
and later shook my hand after the book came out. He was angry about some of the things in my book. Uh, Jerry West cooperated with me quite a bit. Likewise, shook my hand, but also had some anger. It's frankly, it's the hard part of, of doing biographies, but the, the whole idea is to, to put the players in a larger context. Jerry West, for example, came from Sir Thomas West, D. Law War, colonial governor of Virginia, for which Delaware is named. Uh, the Delaware Indians, Delaware River, state of Delaware, and yet Jerry West's family eventually ended up as dirt-scratching hillbillies there in, uh, outside of Charleston in West Virginia. Michael Jordan's story involved the sharecroppers on the coastal plain of North Carolina. Just an amazing story of, of fierce people battling every kind of thing. They were moonshiners, as were most of the farmers in North Carolina. They, they lived very hard lives. But um, that, that background and Michael Jordan's great-grandfather, uh, uh, a man he idolized uh, until – uh, age 14, when Michael lost his great-grandfather, was just such an important figure, as was his grandfather on his mother's side. And likewise, the Kobe story. He comes from a long line of just brilliant fatherhood on both sides of his family. And a lot of times that fatherhood was um, pursued despite all the sociological or social factors that went into the, the, the dark, ugly racial history of this country. What accomplishment meant most to Kobe? I mean, you know, prior to last weekend, he, was, he had reached as high as third all-time in scoring five NBA titles, the MVP, you know, four all-star game MVPs, and just accolades all over the place. But is there something about his career that meant more than anything to him? I would say the next one. Um, I think Kobe was not a guy who really had gotten to the age where he was really out to protect his legacy. He wanted, you know, he came into the night before I saw him in Charlotte for his first field goal. He walked into Madison Square Garden the night before and sat down with reporters and declared at age 18 that, he was out to be the greatest basketball player of all time. So you have to understand there were people doubting Kobe's fundamental sanity the whole way, but he was relentless in that goal. He, uh, he, he laid everything on the line for it. I mean, unbelievable things. He eventually removed his parents from his life. Um, he, made every imaginable sacrifice and he called the shot and then he did everything he could to deliver on it. He set aside a, a career in writing and music because as he told me once, uh, I asked him what he was going to do this, that summer of 99. He said, basketball, there is nothing else. He could not give his all to basketball and work at, at music and writing. But as he neared his career, he began acquiring media companies with the plan to be a writer and producer. And of course, with uh, the film uh, Dear Basketball, based on a poem he wrote, he won an Oscar. And so, I, I, you know, he often said that 
if, if everything I do till age 38 playing basketball is a testament I'll, of my life, then I'll have been a failure. So, I, I, you know, I think his proudest moment was was probably what he uh, what he planned to do next. I, I, I don't think he um, just like he never spent any time trying to explain to people that he didn't demand to leave Charlotte. He, the, the Bryant family had no knowledge of any of that until draft night. That was all done by Sonny Vaccaro and Arn Pelham, the agent in L.A. who was close to Jerry West. There are so many of these things that the Bryants really weren't involved in. It wasn't Kobe doing this or that. But the public perceived that. But Kobe never once bothered to correct any of that. Because his whole thing was, was, I'll let my actions, my play, whatever I do, whatever I accomplish, speak for me. And he was very comfortable at giving his best and letting that be the record. For someone who lived in such a public lifestyle and in the public limelight, uh, very different from kind of Michael Jordan's career, social media and just the access really came along at the end of his career. But with Kobe, he grew up in that media age where everything was under the microscope. And, and we saw a lot of it, the good and the bad, as you mentioned, with the Colorado uh, allegations back in 2003. But as somebody who has an intimate knowledge of him as a, a basketball player and an individual, what is something that the public does not know about him that they should? Well, I, I think it goes back to that fact that he really – uh, as opposed to the narrative presented in the media at the time, uh, he he really was a kid just eager to compete. He uh, was attracted to the idea of playing college basketball. He had plenty of bravado. I mean, he, he's a kid who declared he was going to be the greatest, but uh, he he really wanted to go to college uh, there. You know, the debate goes back and forth. Would it have been Duke or UNC? That's not entirely clear. He did, when he had a chance to express it uh, back in the early days, he let it be known that he thought so much of Coach Mike Krzyzewski at Duke. And, of course, he also displayed that in later years and had one of his grandest moments uh, playing for Coach K playing for the uh, U.S. and the Olympics. You could absolutely see the mutual respect that the two of them had during those Olympic runs. Right. And, you know, that, that was all born. Coach K wasn't really re- recruiting Kobe. He would just call him and talk to him. They would have conversations. It was, it was sort of like those conversations Tex Winter had with Kobe in 1999 before Tex was hired to coach the Lakers with Phil Jackson. It was, uh, uh, it was that stuff. Kobe had already put himself at a young age in a very lonely place and in a place fighting to, to do the things he had, uh, forecast, you know, and, and all those pro coaches and, teammates were trying to uh to change him and he kept telling me i just want to be the man i'm not going to let them break me i'm not going to let them change me it was sort of a sad misguided collision 
But he survived it because he had, just as he survived the mistakes in Colorado and then all of the, uh, he, you know, Sonny Vaccaro said he was like the Russians with the Romanovs. He removed everybody. He removed Sonny Vaccaro and Adidas. He removed Arn Kellum, the agent who had put him in L.A. Uh, you know, he eventually began working on removing Phil Jackson and Shaquille O'Neal. And he uh, he removed uh, his parents and his his immediate family, his sisters, and he, he he pushed all of these controlling factors aside to to go ahead with his career. But in all of the anger and sort of claiming his independence is when he made his biggest mistakes. He truly was a a unique uh, unique individual who was able to go through a public rebranding and rebirth. Uh, in front of millions and millions of people. And for somebody who who had that knowledge of him and was able to cover him in almost two decades apart, uh, we appreciate the perspective you've been able to provide on his life and his legacy. And uh, he, he will be missed in the sports world, uh, but we're happy that we do have a connection here in Virginia that can kind of keep us uh, keep us open to, to the life and times of Kobe Bryant. So Roland, thank you so much for joining us today on the Hall Call podcast. Thank you, Will. Well, that is going to do it for this edition of the Hall Call Podcast. I'd like to thank again my guest, Roland Lazenby, for joining us today to reflect on the life of Kobe Bryant. Uh, again, Roland has two biographies written on the late basketball superstar, The NBA Education of Kobe Bryant and Showboat, The Life of Kobe Bryant. As always, if you like what you heard, please follow and like us on SoundCloud, and you can now find the Hall Call podcast on Spotify as well. You can also find the most up-to-date and archived episodes of Hall Call on our website, www.vasportshof.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media for the latest episodes. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all handles are at vasportshof. I'd like to thank ESPN Radio 94.1 WVSPFM and our executive producer, Thomas Simmons, for their support. I am Will Driscoll. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hall Call Podcast.